Well, thanks for paying attention to that. If you would uh, open your Bibles, we are going to turn our attention to the book of Acts. We are making our way through, and we are about to the end of this, actually. We have, well, we have several weeks left yet, because we have a couple of chapters left. But we are in Acts chapter 25, and we have just gotten to the place where uh, Paul is being kept in custody, and Festus is the new governor of the region, and he immediately is, uh, is... sort of, if you want to say accosted, he's immediately made uh, aware by the Jewish, Jewish leaders that this Paul guy, they really still want him dead, they really want him still taken care of, and he's not sure what to do. You saw this back and forth kind of coming, he's not sure what to do. He really knows, as is evidenced by what Paul says, he really knows that Paul really isn't guilty of something that he should, you know, put him, uh, hold him by, according to Roman standards. But he also doesn't really know how to get rid of him. He doesn't know what he, I don't know if he has some sense that if he gives him up to the Jewish leaders that it's going to mean his life. I don't know what, what all he's aware of, but I think he's in some sense left not knowing what to do. And as it so happens, there's another man who is a leader who he's going to turn to. And that's our text today. We're going to read verses uh, uh, 13 through 27, the end of the chapter of chapter 25. I want to read the text, when a, uh, and then we're going to just spend some time picking apart a couple of details. Now, a lot of this is sort of a recounting of what's already been happening uh, as Festus talks to King Agrippa. But let's read the text first, and then we'll jump in. Verse 13. Follow along carefully in your own Bible or listen carefully as I read. Now when some days had passed, it says, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and they greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. They wanted him dead. Verse 16, I answered, Festus says, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charges in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I'd have decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. God, as I always do, I ask for your your unfolding of this text 
you and your word, your Holy Spirit, illuminating this word, has this amazing ability to bring things out that uh, we don't know, we don't think about, or has this amazing way of applying it to our lives that we had never seen before. I'm so amazed by it, and I'm so grateful for it, and I ask you just in plain terms this morning to do exactly that. You know, Father, that uh, the words that come out of my mouth aren't uh, always correct. I, I surrender to you and ask, Father, for you to be clearly teaching uh, both through my mouth and just directly into our hearts. I love that you do that. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to jump right in because there's just a couple of things we need to cover. But it says here that Festus being left in this place is, has some relief when a man named Agrippa comes. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I put up this family tree of the Herodian family. You guys remember that? It's this convoluted, I mean, I mean they have uh, Herod the Great, the first one, has all these children. He has all these wives and all these children, and they intermarry with each other. Uh, several times we see cases where one is married to one of the sons, and in the end turns up to be married to another one of the sons. So you got things going on like they're married to their brother-in-law, and they're and their nieces, and all kinds of weird stuff like that. At the bottom of that chain is this guy named Agrippa. Now, this is actually Agrippa II. His dad was the one that had imprisoned Peter, and then subsequently died because he didn't, uh, he didn't turn away the praises of people, and they said he was, it was the voice of God. Remember that? This is back in Acts, I think it was about chapter 12, somewhere around there. This is his son. This, by the way, again, just kind of tracking back, this is the brother of Drusilla, who is the wife of Felix, the guy who was in prison, Paul, and kept him there. Kept him there for two years, even though he realized there's not really anything that he was guilty of. This is the brother of that man. Also remember, I made this comment at the very end, here comes the king, and it, it says it very clearly in the text, by the way. Luke is very careful when he, when he words this. He says, Agrippa the king, and then Bernice. We today often read that and assume that that means he was his wife. It's actually his sister. She was married. His husband, her husband died. She moved back home and lived with her brother. And there are multiple sources from Jewish history that say there actually was uh, some illicit incestuous behavior between the two. But it was his sister. They lived together. They're traveling together. They come to see uh, Festus and Caesarea. We probably want to understand that they came because he was the new governor, and they want to give him their greetings. And also, as is known to be doing, if, now we don't live in that time, so we don't, we don't always pick up on this, but when there's a new person in power, then all those around them also want to come and kind of see where, they, where, they, where things shake out, right? Kind of make their alliances, kind of make sure they know how like, get in good with them, all those kind of things. Technically speaking, this guy, by the way, Agrippa, is the last of the Herodian dynasty to rule. I don't know if you care about this kind of history stuff. It's fascinating to me, so I spend time looking into it. He's the last one of them. He actually has a pretty minor kingdom. He's not really in charge of a whole lot, to be very honest. And where he's in charge of is not actually technically under Festus's control. However, you remember we talked about Drusilla. Agrippa's no different. They have Jewish lineage. They're Jews, which means he, Agrippa, holds a lot of weight with the Jewish authorities. In fact, he has probably the closest tie, ties to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in terms of telling them what to do. He, in fact, was even granted permission by the Roman authorities to help bring the next high priest and those guys on. So that's the kind of role he played. Even though he's not directly in charge of them, he has a lot of strong connections. So it makes sense that when Festus has him in audience, that he says, hey, I got to talk to you about this guy. You know about the Jews. In fact, Paul's going to say the very, next, very same thing in the next chapter. He says, he's going to say, Agrippa, I'm so glad to be talking to you because you know everything about this. You know all about these guys. Festus, as we've seen a few times when people are recounting events, what does he do? He paints himself in the best light possible, right? So you notice there's a few things, again, we're not going to pick on any major details, but there's a few things, again, where he says things a little differently. 
He doesn't say it quite like it was. In other words, he makes it sound like he really is at a loss what to do, and he may be to some degree, but we also understood from the last text we read last week that in some way he's saying, I just want to kind of get rid of the problem. Why don't I send Paul to Jerusalem and they'll take care of it? Which is why Paul says, no, 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 no. I want to go to, C- I, want to I appeal to Caesar because I'm, Ro- I'm in Caesar's court where I belong. Festus retells him this story and as he gets to this part, he says, you know, as much as they were clamoring about, as much as there was this big uproar about this guy, I was sure there would be some really serious charges leveled against him. In the end, this is the key verse for us this morning. The first, we're going to divide the text basically in half. This is the key verse of the first half. In the end, he says, what really happened is they had these points of dispute about their own religion and about a certain guy named Jesus who one side was saying was dead and Paul kept saying was alive. That's what it boiled down to in the end. Remember Paul's phrase early on when he was first captured? He said, it's with regard to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on. We see this popping up over and over again, right? It comes down to this very same thing. But I want to notice a couple things. I want you to notice a couple things about this verse. First of all, the word up there that's religion, depending on what translation you're reading, it may use the word superstition. Now, I won't tell you the Greek word. In fact, it's hard to pronounce. It's one of those compound things. But the word actually can mean either one, depending on context. It can either mean, if you believe in it, religion, or if you think it's kind of hokey, superstition. I suggest to you Festus used that word intentionally, leaving it rather vague. He could have used a more specific word that referred to religion or the belief of the Jews, but he didn't. I suggest he was on purpose, because I think he knew from Agrippa's perspective, he would want to interpret that as religion, because he was a Jew. From Festus's perspective, however, to him, what was it? It was a bunch of superstitious stuff. By the way, Paul used the exact same word with the exact same intent earlier on in, in, in Acts. If you would look back to Acts chapter 17, verse 22, or in this case, I'll put it up on the screen so you don't have to look back there. He says this, when he comes to Athens and he looks around, he spends time seeing all these gods they have around and he comes to one that says to an unknown God. Remember what he says? He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. The exact same word, because he, with the exact same intent, right? Because in this case, it was the opposite. He wanted them to understand or to think that he meant religious, but to him, what did he actually mean? You're really superstitious. You have all these gods around you. Let me tell you about the one true God. See, he used it the exact same way that Festus is using it. But let's go back to this verse, verse uh, verse 19, the key verse here. Because as Festus is boiling it all down in front of Agrippa, he says, it really comes down to this. And I don't get this because we have this group over here and they're saying this man, Jesus, is dead. And we have this one guy over here, and the, 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 the way that the verb is used, when it says Paul asserted him to be alive, it's like he did it on and on. He didn't just say it once. He did it over and over and over again. It's present, present part of He's like on and on. He's like, he kept saying, no, he's alive. No, he's alive. No, he's alive. And Festus is saying, I don't know what's going on. How can this be true? If I could submit to you, by the way, even though Festus does not understand the, 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 the struggle that's happening behind here, these guys saying, ought not, he ought not to live, and God's saying he ought to go to Rome. He doesn't understand any of that stuff. As confusing as all this is, at the bottom bedrock of your faith and my faith, actually both of those statements are true, right? Jesus had died. Jesus was dead, right? Literally, Jesus was dead, but Jesus is now alive. What Festus couldn't wrap his mind around was actually the truth. Jesus was dead. He had died, but he is now alive. What Paul was saying was true. That, by the way, we're going to see, 
Paul said it. We're gonna, we saw it popping over. That is the foundation of our faith. We talked this morning in Sunday school about the cross and the symbol that sometimes becomes for us. And sometimes even in a dangerous way, the symbol it becomes to us where we lose sight of what's actually happened on the cross. But I would tell you again, over and over and over again in the book of, of the Acts and in the New Testament, the emphasis is on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me share some words Paul would write later. These words I hope for you and I this morning are going to be of great comfort. Let me just read them for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 14. Paul says this. Picture him, by the way, standing in front of Jewish leaders who want him dead in the worst way possible, in front of the king or the, in front of the governor of the region, the guy who has control over him, and they're having this argument about this Jesus, this spe- you know, not just resurrection in general, but this specific case of Jesus. Paul says this, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Do you see why the resurrection is important? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't... Sorry, let me read that again. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. In other words, if there's no resurrection, then God could not have raised Jesus back. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Stop and think for a moment. As wonderful and as glorious as it is to tell you that Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins, if Jesus were still in the grave, still dead because of your sins, what kind of hope would you have? If the end result of your sins was enough that it could kill God and he couldn't come back from that, what kind of hope would you have? If the end result of sin is death, what kind of hope do you have? Do you see how we keep honing in and shortening that up and realizing that not only does it mean your sins can't be forgiven, but it also means you have zero hope after you die in this life. None. It's impossible. You can't have any. Because sin apparently was victorious. If that's true, this following line of thought, because sin apparently was victorious and death wins in the end. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Thankfully, there's a next verse, right? Thankfully, we can read one more verse, and Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not just Jesus, he was victorious, praise the Lord, but not just him, he's the first fruits, which indicates there's more coming, right? That everyone who's fallen asleep will also be brought back from the dead. That brings us hope. By the way, if you need a little more confirmation this morning, take Jesus' own words because there was another man named John who followed Jesus when he walked on the earth and then Jesus died, rose again and went to heaven and John kept on living and at the end of his life he had a vision and in that vision he saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus and these were the words Jesus said to him. Listen very carefully to these words. He says, fear not, Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. That, friends, that, brothers and sisters, is the anchor for your soul. You have none other. You have none other. 
Jesus saying, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I died, but I am alive now forevermore. I'm the one that holds the keys to death in Hades. No one else. This rock is Jesus. That's why we sing that song, right? This rock is Jesus. He's the only one. But be very sure. Be very sure that you have him. This, whether Festus knows it or not, this is the debate that's unfolding in front of him. In fact, I would tell you, he probably has not a single clue. But as he's standing helpless before Agrippa, that's the debate that happened in front of him. This debate of whether there's any hope. For the Jewish leaders, there was still no hope. Mind you, they believed in the resurrection if they were Pharisees. But they didn't believe in the specific case that they were talking about. This Jesus that they were saying was dead. And Paul said, no, he's alive. He's alive. He's the very thing that has given you the hope that you have. That you can have. That I'm about to tell you that you can have. And King Agrippa says, you know, I would like to hear this man myself. I would like to hear what this man has to say. Of course, Festus responds and says, you will do that tomorrow. Let's do it. We'll go into the second part of the text now. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come. And they come as kings should always come, right? They come with great pomp and circumstance. They come with all the royal of royals, the highest people that were there in that, in the, at the time in that town. And they come with great, uh, great to-do. That's how kings always come, right? Except for the king of kings. He didn't come that way at all, did he? They come and Festus brings Paul in and says, here is the man. Here is the man. Hear him yourself. Let's see what he has to do. By the way, unwittingly, unknowingly, according to the sovereignty of God, they are putting themselves in position over and over again to hear the gospel preached. Have you noticed that? While they're trying to always figure out what's really going on here, Paul keeps getting another opportunity and another opportunity and another opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. What an amazing thing. This is why Paul says over and over again, you think it's such a bad thing I'm in, I'm in change. You think it's such a bad thing I'm in drug in front of all these authorities. But I tell you, it's an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to advance over and over again. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'll say it again. When will we, you and I, stop thinking that every bad circumstance is just something to get rid of instead of recognizing that what we think is such a bad thing so many times is an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be advanced? If we would but share the hope that we have. By the way, Jesus said this was going to happen, right? Look at the context. He's in front of, oh, well, I'll just put the verse up there. Matthew 10, 18. In the middle of it, I'll just jump in the middle of the verse. Because he says, and you're going to be dragged, followers of mine, disciples of Jesus. You're going to be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Where does Paul find himself? Before kings and governors, Festus and Agrippa, to share the gospel. By the way, it's actually a fulfillment of Jesus' specific words about Paul. He didn't say them to Paul directly, but he said them to a man named Ananias who was going to give Paul his sight back after he experienced the Damascus Road experience that he had. Because in Acts chapter 9, 15, Jesus says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And I'm sure Ananias told Paul exactly that. And I'm sure that Paul, as he stood before King Agrippa and Festus and Felix and all the ones that eventually to Caesar, I'm sure he kept thinking, that's exactly what Ananias told me was going to happen. This is exactly what Ananias, you see, when God says it's going to happen, what do you think is going to happen?
But here we come to the key verse because as Festus is presenting before Agrippa, this man, Paul, that they were all shouting about, that they were saying he ought not to live. But behind the scenes, no one knew that God kept, other than Paul, kept saying that God, or that Paul, you ought to go to Rome. You're gonna, and there's this great fight. Well, they think it's a great battle of who's gonna win because they want him dead and God keeps saying, you're gonna go to Rome and testify on my behalf. In the end, the key verse comes down to this because Festus looks to Agrippa and he says, I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. Here it is for the first time in explicit terms that the man in charge of Paul's imprisonment says he's not guilty. I've been doing this over and over again, but doesn't this just remind us again of Jesus standing before the Roman authorities? Do you know three times, three times the Roman authorities came back to the Jews and said about Jesus, he's not guilty. Three times I find no guilt in this man. By the way, we're going to get to the third time. This is actually the second. Uh, this is the first direct one, but there's a second reference that they did not find him guilty. We're going to get to the third one in the, in the next chapter where they say explicitly of Paul the very same thing. He's not guilty. And yet, in both situations, what happens? Does that mean they get to go free? Does that mean they walked away? No. Jesus went to the cross. Paul will go to Rome in chains. We see once again this juxtaposition of the words, the recognition that he's innocent, but the whole narrative is going in the opposite direction, right? And Festus, look at this. He says, I have found that he did nothing deserving death, but now he's got a problem, doesn't he? He's got a problem because he's saying he is not guilty of anything, but I'm not willing to release him either. And now he's, by his own words, he's appealed to Caesar, which means now I have to send him to Caesar. But now I have another big, even bigger problem because I have to send him on to the man who is, of course, my superior because he's the superior of the whole nation I live in. And I don't really know what I'm going to say about what he's done. How can I send him on? I have nothing definite to say about him that he did wrong. How can I send a prisoner to Caesar, appeal to him, and when I say what he's done wrong, it's going to be nothing. How is this going to work? You see... This is why he said, Agrippa, I'm really glad you're here. Can you help me out, please? In fact, he says exactly that, right? He says, that's why I brought him before all of us, and especially you, King Agrippa. You know the Jews. Help me think of something that I can say to Caesar that when I send him up the chain, I have something to write and say, this is why he's coming your way. The last line, again, if you're getting this sense of like how these things seem to just, just go against each other, the last line. He's just, just couple, verse 22, is that what he, where he says, but I find nothing guilty in him? I'm sorry, it's verse 25. But I found nothing that he's done deserving death. And then he says, but it seems unreasonable to me. It seems crazy to me. It's insane to me to send a prisoner and not indicate any charges against him. I can't do that. Well, I know you're all on the edge of your seats, but we're going to wait till next week to hear what uh, Paul says. <laughs> Thank you. A few of you are still awake and recognize that was a joke. Next week, we're going to talk about what Paul says to Agrippa and what Agrippa's response is and all those things. But we're going to save that for next week because we've got a, quite a lengthy text that we're going to try to uh, hope to get through next week as the story, despite the repeated claims of innocence, the story keeps moving towards uh, Rome with Paul still in chains. But we must remind ourselves, this, the story is actually moving according to God's sovereignty, isn't it? not according to our 
our, our visual viewpoint of what's right and what's not right. In that way, maybe we should end by recognizing the songs we sang are so fitting, right? Be still, my soul. Be still and know and be still, my soul. Fitting for us to recognize that when the narrative seems to be going like this in our lives, that God in his sovereignty has a direction that he's making us, having us move. Question is, will we submit or not? Well, that's what the disciples of Jesus Christ do. That's what we ought to do as his followers as well. Let's uh, pray together and we'll be done this morning. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your word. We are so grateful for how it speaks to us. We are so grateful that as we pick it apart, that it, 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 it influences even our lives today, what happened so many years ago. And we're reminded of the truth that, that came out of that first text. It is still about the, the great battle for our souls, the great struggles we may, it is still about the resurrection of the dead and specifically about this Jesus. And I'm so grateful that when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for my sins, for our sins, that death, that sin and death were not victorious, were not the ones in the end who triumphed, but that you brought him back out of that grave, that he is alive, that sin and death have been conquered, that Paul, in fact, I could have kept on reading and Paul would have said those words, where, where grave is your victory? Where is the sting of death? It is swallowed up. It is taken care of. We praise you. We thank you. It's the rock that we have. It's the, it's the hope that we can cling to. And it's you, Jesus. You are the first and the last, the bright morning star. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. You are the living one. You died, but now you are alive forevermore. You hold the keys to death and Hades. We want to worship you. We want to surrender to you. We want to submit to you. We want to hide ourselves in you. We want you to be Lord of our lives so that as we proclaim you before men today, you will proclaim us, acknowledge us before your Father in heaven someday for we know that day is coming. Thank you for the hope that you give us, Father, through Jesus Christ. I pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning? As Jesus left, he said that uh, it is our good that he will leave, for he will send the Holy Spirit from the Father and will come to be our guide, our comforter, the one who leads us and guides us into truth. And so my exhortation to you as we leave is that you would receive again this morning. I don't think it's the first time you've done it, but again this morning you would receive uh, or just recommit yourself to walking in the Lordship of the Holy Spirit for that is what makes you continue on the right path until Jesus returns. Father, we receive your Holy Spirit gladly. We want to walk under his Lordship. We surrender control to him that you may be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.